Hello, dear friend, and welcome. My name is Cynthia Alice Anderson, and I'm the owner and founder of the Experience of the Soul podcast channel. I have been so honored to be able to offer these programs several days a week, and these programs I know are inspiring, they are supporting, and they are uplifting your life's journey. I want to see that continue, and I honor you for being a part of making that happen. So for over five years, we've been able to offer these programs, and we want to continue to be able to offer them. So over the next 90 days, we are raising $9,000, and that's going to get us all the way through the end of the year. So I ask you to consider taking the time to support the channel that supports you. And again, our goal that we're asking you to be a part of is $9,000 in 90 days. And we look forward to hearing from you, friend. We're honored to support your journey. And we always are lifting you in prayer for God's highest and best in your life. Blessings on the journey, dear friend. And I look forward to seeing you very soon. Welcome to Healing Your Family Legacy, here on the Experience of the Soul podcast channel. Innovative, evidence-based recovery that helps to identify intergenerational trauma, allowing for freedom and embracement of the healing process. Today, Episode 70, Mental Health and Violence. And now your host, Dr. Donna Bevanley. And this is Dr. Donna Bevanley, helping you heal your family legacy. And today, I might say that helping us all heal from the violence that we have been experiencing, it's becoming a legacy of our country. We are the only country in the world that most of the people have you know, mo- more people have guns than cars. And so if that many people have guns in this country, we need to have good mental health assistance available. <laughs> That's what I'm going to talk about today. The mental health laws in this country when I let me go back and say, when I was young and I first started in this profession, which was about 1972, we had a mental health system in this country that worked better than any I've seen. Okay. And I participated in that mental health system. It wasn't perfect, but what we have today. Excuse me if I offend anybody. Sucks. It's horrid what we have today. When I started in the mental health system, a person like myself or, you know, another mental health professional could be called all mental health clinics. We had a system of community mental health centers in every God, I'm thinking about it. I ran a mental health clinic back then when I was at the great old age of about 28 (laughs) or 9. But I ran a mental health clinic in a town in Nevada 
Fernley, Nevada, as a matter of fact. And at that time, there were probably maybe a couple of thousand people. And I also was, in, you know, because it was a small clinic, fortunately for me and everybody else, we didn't have all those, you know, 2,000 people didn't have mental health issues that I knew of. So I also would go to Fallon, Nevada, which was a naval air station and was a bigger town. They had a mental health clinic. They had probably, let's see, there was maybe, there was one PhD psychologist, there was a psychiatrist, and there were probably five mental health counselors in that mental health clinic. And that was a town of maybe 8,000. And that system, mental health clinics, were all over the country. And so there were available therapists, psychologists, you know, MSW or master's level therapists, PhD psychologists, and psychiatrists for every person that needed it. The only thing you had to do was call and make an appointment or like when I was in Phoenix and worked at the Westside Mental Health Clinic, there were two master's level therapists and an available psychiatrist who we were the crisis team. So in that mental health clinic, and it was just west side of Phoenix, okay? Just the west side. You ha- is all you had to do is call or walk in and say, somebody's having a mental health meltdown. Can you help us? And we would be obliged to go and do an evaluation in the community. I was in there one day and, you know, a lady called and said, oh, I'm really concerned about there's a man across the street and he's he's kissing a tree. And it looks like he's doing other things to the tree. I'm really concerned. Oh, okay. Me, you know, because I took the call. Me and the psychiatrist went out there and evaluated this man. And in fact, he was. He was hearing voices. He didn't know that was a tree. He was hallucinating. And guess what? I, you know, we did the evaluation, determined that he was having a mental health crisis. Hello, I'm kissing trees. I'm, you know, it's like having a mental health crisis. The police came in a police car. You know, they evaluated that he wasn't dangerous. The ambulance came and took him to the hospital where he got a 72-hour evaluation. I don't know what happened after that because I wasn't in the in that part of it. But my point is that he got immediate attention as all that had to happen was somebody called and said, this is going on. And they weren't abusing this. People weren't abusing this. They weren't calling up their you know, calling up their community mental health clinic and saying, hey, you know, because they're mean and nasty, calling out somebody because they're mad at them. (laughs) This wasn't an abusive thing. The law was at that time, and I might have a little bit off because I'm old and this was 50 years ago, okay? Give me a break. Um, That... If I, as a mental health professional, deemed that this person 
was of danger to themselves or others because of a mental health problem, I could have them admitted to the hospital for 72 hours where they were evaluated, where if they needed medication, they got on it. And maybe because this guy, he was seriously mentally ill, he probably ended up in the mental hospital. Oh, by the way, they've closed a lot of mental hospitals because they determined in their whatever, God knows what, why did we close mental hospitals when we need them? We closed them because it was against, you know, against their human right to be, in, you know, institutionalized in a mental hospital. Oh, so guess where they are now? Let me tell you where they are now. Walk through a com- homeless camp someday. So now we don't have mental hospitals. Well, we have a few, but they're not very many. They're not well-staffed, and they're not focused on treatment to get people out in a positive way. And by that, I mean, oh, okay, so let's just take this man that was kissing trees. We had him admitted for the 72-hour evaluation, found out because we were interested in what happened to him. He was admitted to the state hospital where he received treatment, where he got on medications that back then the medications were horrible to stop this kind, you know, to stop the voices and to, you know, deal with the the hallucinations. It was like, those medications had horrible side effects. They stopped it, but it kind of turned you into a zombie. It had what we call extrapyramidal symptoms, which meant that their necks started to get stiff and their head would, you know, they, they looked a little bit like they had Parkinson's. No offense to Parkinson's people. I know people who have Parkinson's. My God, my mother had it. Anyway, so they had the jerky movements and stuff, but most of them still took the medication because the voices and the hallucinations were horrible. Now, keeping them on the medication, guess where he went after he got out of the hospital and got stabilized? He went to a transitional care facility. We had those then, by the way. So he went from the mental hospital to transitional care. What happened there? Well, it was a building that was built especially for people who had chronic mental illness. They could live there. As long as they wanted. They had little apartments. They had, we had social workers at those little apartments, not in the apartment, but who ran those transitional care centers 24 hours a day. There was someone there. Teach them how to cook. Teach them how to manage their money. Have group therapy and individual therapy. And a nurse that would come once a day to make sure they all got on their, stayed on their medication. They got jobs. Sure, they had, well, they had sheltered workshop jobs, what we called that, where they could go to places, say, Goodwill or, you know, there's more available now because they don't need a lot of training, but it's like they would go to these places where they were cared for 
called them sheltered workshops. They would work there. They would make money. They would come back home. They had bus passes. On weekends, they would go on outings. So it costs some money. What does it cost for us to deal with the homeless crisis we're in? And most of those people are either addicts or they're mentally ill. We closed mental hospitals. Thanks, President Reagan, for that. We closed and defunded community mental health clinics. We still have them, by the way. We have those community mental health clinics. I would challenge you to get an appointment because I'll tell you what, when I was young and in this, you know, first in this, you didn't have to be chronically mentally ill to get an appointment at a community mental health clinic. All you had to do was call up. I would probably answer the phone or another crisis person because that's who answered the phone. And they would say, oh, well, how can I help you? Well, I'd like to have an appointment with somebody. I've been really depressed. I'm really angry. You know, my wife left me. She took the kids. Okay, so I go, oh, okay, well, I can get you in today. And I might see that guy. And then I would refer him on to one of the therapists who did not do the crisis management. And that's where that guy would come maybe once or twice a week until his depression and his anxiety and his anger, till his result, till he's reached some resolution in his life. So he could find a way to go forward. Or maybe we'd find out that he had a serious alcohol problem, was beating his wife, and that's why she left. So we'd get him help for his alcoholism. And maybe his wife would be willing to come in and have a session. This happened then. It does not happen now. I've been in this profession for 50 years, 50 count them, 50 years, okay? I started out when we had community mental health, when we had mental hospitals. Our, we didn't really have the biggest homeless problem. I don't even remember having a homeless problem. I'm sure they were out there because there are criminals. And there were, you know, probably alcoholics who didn't want to didn't want to get well, but there was available treatment. We don't have that anymore. So I will bet, I would bet anybody anything that this boy, this 18-year-old boy who just had his 18th birthday and got an AR for his birthday, isn't that lovely? Okay. Can't drink alcohol yet, but can walk in and get a weapon of mass destruction. But I will bet you money that before that boy's 18th birthday, those grandparents were trying to get him some kind of help, and they couldn't do it. Why? Well, there's no help to get. Chronically mentally, community mental health clinics, try and get an appointment. Mental hospitals are closing down, and the ones that are there are struggling. To manage the number of people. Okay. 
and to get good help. There's also a legal issue. The law now, at least in Washington, and I don't know, every state is different, <clears throat> but the law now in the state of Washington is that it's not that if, you know, if somebody calls me, say, and says, I'm concerned about this guy kissing trees, I have to say, is he hurting anybody right now? Or does he have a gun to his head right now? Because if he doesn't, I, you know, it's, he can do that as long as he wants. All right. Now, yes, it is not harmful for a person to kiss trees. I've kissed a few myself. I love trees. I don't go out and hug them and kiss them all day like this guy was, but I've kissed a few trees in my life. Didn't make me mentally ill. However, if you call me today and say, I'm concerned about this man who's kissing trees and it makes me too nervous to go over and see what's going on, I can't go out there and evaluate that. Unless he has a gun to his head, unless he's got a knife to someone's throat. So what I'm talking about is that you have to be able to prove that he is harmful to himself and or others. And kissing trees isn't going to do it. You have to wait now. And this boy finally did it. I'll bet today he could get a mental health evaluation because now we've proven that he's harmful to himself and or others. That's what's happened. It is not useful to go to the extreme to protect the rights of the mentally ill by making it necessary for them to prove that they're harmful to themselves and or others in order for them to get mental health assistance. I think the system we had before it was dismantled part of it by President Carter, big part of it by President Reagan. They dismantled the whole mental health, the whole community mental health system, shut down mental hospitals. Guess where all those people went? To the streets, and that's where they are today. And then the, the parents of people who are mentally ill, the young man that shot up Sandy Hook was mentally ill. His mother was trying to get him help. I, like I said, I'll bet you grandma was trying to get this boy help. Almost every shooter has that history where they have said trauma as children in their lives and they're still living it. I'm not saying that it's okay for them to do what they did. But I could tell you right now that if there were some gun laws that said if you have mental health problems, if you have problems with the law, if your background check comes up with some problems, you can't buy a gun, let alone an AR. And I just want to say about ARs, they're weapons that are used in war. We have a war 
that has been declared in this country and people are buying ARs and walking in killing people. Most of them are mentally ill. You know, white supremacy in my world is mental illness. You are delusional. If you think that there's some kind of big process going on to, to, to take your jobs away, to take your lives away and replace it with people of color. Oh, please, how delusional is that? And by the way, oh, if you believe that, you can go and visit Jurassic Park on an island somewhere and see dinosaurs. That's insanity. That is mental illness. We validate craziness. We've normalized insanity in this country. And what's insanity? Let me just review. I love the way, you know, when I was in graduate school, I wasn't even in graduate school. It was one of my abnormal psych classes in 1969. I heard my psych teacher say, Mental illness, there's neurosis and psychosis. And he said, neurosis is when people dream of castles in the air and wish they could live in them. Psychosis is people who do make castles in the air and they their brains go there and live in them. Okay, so neurosis depression, anxiety, you know, a whole list of, you know, they all they all kind of come down to depression and anxiety. But people are unhappy. And they spend time in their brains trying to figure out how they can get happy again. That's neurosis. And psychosis are people who hallucinate, think, see things that aren't there hear voices in their heads and are delusional. Delusional. Believe things that aren't real. That's a delusion. Oh, let me give you an example. I don't want to do that job because it makes me feel demeaned or it doesn't pay me enough money or I can't buy a brand new car. And I see that somebody of color has got that job and they're doing the job. My delusional mind would say, well, it's that job should be mine and that car should be mine and that person of color is driving it or that person of color has it and they took it away from me. That is delusional thinking. Delusion is part of mental illness. So, yeah, white supremacy is mental illness. Why normalize that? What good would it do? And by the way, it's not real. Delusions, by their nature, are not real. So, another delusion I grew up with was that 
gay people were child molesters. That's not real. And if you persist in believing that, you're delusional. You're mentally ill. Get help. Now, if I'm talking to somebody who has suicide depression, they're having suicidal ideation, which means that they're thinking about it and wondering what it would be like if they weren't here anymore. And But they don't really have, you know, they haven't bought a gun. They haven't, you know, gone out and got a whole bunch of pills to take. They're not, they don't have a plan. They just wonder, gosh, you know, I feel so bad. I wish I could just die. I wonder what it would be like and blah, blah. So that's an ideation. And if you're thinking, so we call that ideation, suicidal ideation. And they can, you know, you can get help for that. If you think, well, I just feel terrible and things aren't going right for me and, you know, I'm not getting enough money and I don't have a nice car and, you know, I don't live in a nicer house and blah, blah, blah. And it's because all those people of color or who are gay or lesbian, they took it from me. Isn't that about as delusional as thinking, well... You know, the world will be a better place without me. Only one, we can see that if you're going to kill yourself, you've got ideas and delusions about, you know, because about your own life. And I will tell you this. Suicide, I've said this before, suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary situation. Everything goes by. I, you know, even this horrible mass shooting at the school where 19 children were killed. We'll get through this. I hope we don't forget, but we normalize it. We accommodate it. We move on. And every problem in your life, that can be true too. But we still call that part of a depression which is part of the mental health of our country all right so what why isn't it a mental illness if i'm sitting there thinking well i should just ought to go kill other people and then my problems will be solved what we don't call that a mental illness. It's a mental illness. Get help. Now, I've already said, I think the best mental health system that we ever had is gone. But there are still available mental health options for you. There's a There are crisis lines everywhere. There are suicide hotlines everywhere. There are 12-step programs. I don't know if there's 12-step programs for think that they ought to go kill people. There's, you know, I don't know what would happen if a whole bunch of people that felt that way got together. I hope they don't. They already do. But not in a 12-step program. Okay. Um, there are mental, there are facilities available. You can walk into emergency room today and say, I need help. And at least someone's going to talk to you. 
don't live in that delusion of thinking that if I kill you, if I kill myself or I kill someone else, my life will be better. It won't. There will just be other dead people. Don't do it. Get the help you need. Now, I hope that the next time that I'm here doing this, that another tragedy hasn't happened. Because I'm telling you, I'm not going to normalize it. It's a mental health crisis that we are in. I'll keep talking about it. And I'm also going to talk about more addictions if we happen to get past a couple of weeks without a trauma happening. Please take care of yourselves. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healing Your Family Legacy here on the Experience of the Soul podcast channel. This channel is made possible because of listeners just like you. If you would like to support the channel with your tax-deductible contribution on an ongoing basis or through a one-time gift, head over to experienceofthesoul.com support. Healing Your Family Legacy is copyright 2022, Dr. Donna Bevanly, all rights reserved. Our theme music is composed by Dave Croft and used with permission. The Experience of the Soul podcast channel is a production of 818 Studios.